We're in the middle of our, our message series on the book of Genesis. If you made it here today without a Bible or outline, just raise your hand so we can bring you one. We want you to be able to follow along. And we are working our way through coming to an accurate, realistic understanding of the event known as the flood, the great flood, the flood of Noah. And I was thinking about this, it's pretty strange that when you talk to people about the events of Revelation, they'd say, well, we, you know, we don't really like to talk about that or talk about it in church. It's a lot of like death and destruction and stuff like that. And we don't want to weird anybody out. But yet you go into churches and they've painted scenes from Noah's Ark on the walls of the children's ministry. And it's really a story about the death and destruction of the entire planet except for eight people. And it's a strange story to read your kids at night when you think about it. And the more you get into understanding what was actually going on, you realize I think this is more of a, a cautionary type story in the Bible to help us understand how serious the issue of sin is and the reality that God really will judge the whole world because he's done it before. Last week we saw the rains begin to fall and the waters begin to rise as the surface of the earth split open causing global volcanic activity, the, the bursting forth of waters from beneath the surface of the earth and the falling of this ancient water canopy in the atmosphere coming down in the form of what was likely the first rains the world had ever experienced. And as all this unfolded, Noah and his family were sealed inside the ark, the Lord himself closing and sealing the only door as the future of planet earth the whole future of planet Earth huddled in the safety of the ark while the world around them was completely destroyed. It was a catastrophe of a magnitude greater than anything we've ever seen or anything we could even imagine today. This week we're gonna witness the end of the ark's journey as Noah and his family step off onto a different and completely remade new earth unrecognizable from the one they had stepped off of. So let's jump in, Genesis chapter eight, verse one. Have your pen ready. It says, then God remembered Noah, underline God remembered Noah, and every living thing, and all the animals that were with him in the ark, and God made a wind to pass over the earth, and the waters subsided. The word then is not really meant to be there. In some of your Bibles it will say and, but the point is that God remembered Noah, and that's always our hope. That's why I love so much the way the Gospel of Matthew ends, which is with Jesus telling his disciples, this is on your outlines, and lo, I am with you always, always, even to the end of the age. Whatever situation you're facing, whatever dilemma you're in, no matter how hopeless things may appear, if you are a disciple of Jesus, you have this hope. He's with you and he remembers you. He never forgets you even for a second. He never ever leaves you. Now if there was indeed this water canopy around in the earth's atmosphere, which seems to be alluded to in Genesis 1 and 2, then it would have likely created a globally consistent climate. Same temperature, same weather system all over the world. And without different temperatures, you don't have differing air pressures. And without differing air pressures, you don't have the cause of wind. You don't have the cause of wind, which is contrasting weather pressure systems. So as strange as it sounds, as crazy as it may seem, it's very possible 
that the wind is specifically recorded here in part because this was the first wind that had ever taken place on the face of the earth. And God sends this wind to seemingly speed up evaporation, which is happening in a whole new way because the sun is now fully exposed rather than being filtered through this water canopy. In verse two we read, the fountains of the deep and the windows of heaven were also stopped and the rain from heaven was restrained. So there comes a point when the Lord says, that's enough water. And the waters that were coming up from the earth stop and the rain that was falling from the atmosphere stops. Verse three, and the waters receded continually from the earth. At the end of the 150 days, the waters decreased. Then, underline, the ark rested in the seventh month, the 17th day of the month, on the mountains of Ararat. We'll come back to why that's so important. What's happening here is pretty incredible. The waters are receding because the Lord is terraforming the earth. He's reshaping it. And all signs point to a much larger percentage of the earth being land before the flood and land with much less extreme heights. You remember that there's all this water on the earth today and after the flood that was up in this water canopy above the earth. So much more of the earth's surface now is covered with water than was before the flood. We've also talked about the hydrological cycle that's spoken about in Genesis where the ground was watered from beneath the earth. And that speaks to a relatively high water table if you know anything about that sort of stuff. When the Lord sends the flood, the earth's tectonic plates push up against each other, creating volcanic explosions and and sending water that was in the earth hurtling upward and out across the surface of the earth. And it leaves these huge gaps in the earth where all this ash and magma and lava used to be, where all this water used to be. And when God tells the waters to begin receding, that's where they begin retreating back into, downhill. And as they do it, they're carving the land very quickly, creating things like the Grand Canyon. If you ever go to the Grand Canyon, I've been there and it's unreal because you park your car and you walk over this little hill that's about 10 feet high and it's just there and your, your brain struggles to comprehend just how big what you're looking at is. It's, it's like looking at a movie screen that just goes way beyond your peripheral vision. It's, it's huge and it's laughable when they tell you, oh yeah, you see that, you see that little river like down there? No, not down there. Look further. Get your binoculars out. It's down, down, down there. Yeah, that's what made all of this. And you look at it and you you can tell right away, you're like, no, no, no. Because things like that are actually formed very, very quickly. And so as the water is draining across the earth, it's carving these valleys and these canyons and these rivers all over the landscape. And these massive recesses that begin to fill up with water become the earth's oceans. They essentially collapse and become like negative mountain ranges. Instead of going up, they go down. As you probably know, there are mountains in the ocean incredibly deep that are as deep or deeper than the highest peaks in the world. So instead of the land being relatively even like this, now the deepest points are down here and the highest points are here. And these new oceans are where all the waters go. Oceans that were created by recesses in the earth that weren't there before the flood. They were full of magma and water and things like that. That's where all the room comes from for the water to drain. There's new space created in the earth for this water. And when the tectonic plates shifted, they also pushed the ground up, as we mentioned, creating massive mountains, the size of which had not existed before the flood. 
And some scholars point out that Psalm 104 seems to indicate that God was actually personally still terraforming the earth as the waters were subsiding. So as the waters are going down, God is actually pushing down the lowest parts of the earth where the oceans are forming and raising up the mountains as well as this is going on. And scientists will tell you that pretty much all mountain ranges in the world are the result of the land being raised up, pushed up by the earth's plates pushing against each other. And most of these mountains are made up of what's known as igneous rock. Igneous rock is magmatic. That means it's made up of cooled lava or magma from volcanic activity. And this is what mountains are made of at their core. But that igneous rock is covered by a layer of what's known as sedimentary rock. Sedimentary rock is material that was pushed there very quickly by water. And it's not formed slowly one layer on top of another over millions of years. Scientists will tell you that sedimentary rock is formed by a catastrophe, a cataclysm, where a tremendous amount of water with great force pushes huge amounts of mud on top of each other, 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 creating this sedimentary rock over time. And there's an explanation for that that is very simple to understand. Before the flood, mountains hadn't been raised up yet. Seabeds hadn't been pushed down yet. The mountains aren't that high. The valleys of the ocean aren't that deep. Great flood comes, drowns the whole earth. It causes massive mudslides and movements of sediment, earth and soil in the water. The flood transported and deposited earth and soil and sedimentary material in massive layers all over the earth. That's what's happening in the first half of the flood. It's just like the whole world is a blender essentially underwater. Then in the latter half of the flood, God begins to push mountains up and push ocean basins down. And as the mountains push up, what happens? they push up the sedimentary rock. So you've got this layer of sedimentary rock and it's being pushed up from underneath. Are you with me? So as this goes up, that layer of sedimentary rock stays on the top of this new mountain as it's being pushed up. And again, geologists will tell you this is how it happens. And this is why on almost every mountain range on the face of the earth, you'll find marine fossils on the top of the mountain. It's not because necessarily that specific mountain was once underwater, it's because the sedimentary rock that's on the top of the mountain was once a layer of sedimentary rock that was just at the bottom of the ocean and then a tectonic plate pushed it up and gave it an elevator ride to the summit of this brand new mountain. And the highest parts of mountain ranges are often limestone. And here's the interesting thing about limestone. Limestone is a type of sedimentary rock that's formed by the gradual deposit of dead marine life. We're talking about things like animals in the oceans that have shells, corals, seaweed, things like that. So when you find limestone at the top of a mountain, it means that that layer was once the bottom of the sea. It's another one of these indications that are all over the world today that tell us the whole face of the earth was dramatically changed by a flood. There can really only be one explanation for seashells and marine fossils at 18,000 feet, which is what we have today. And that is that the sedimentary rock that captured and buried those fossils instantly was then pushed up by the igneous rock when God began to thrust up these mountain ranges. And science acknowledges that the only explanation for the existence of mountains and those mountains having fossilized marine life at their summit 
is that these mountains were raised out of a flood condition. And that's why scientists have concluded that this all must be the work of a meteor. Because the one thing that science can't do is affirm something that it knows will affirm what the Bible says. We've talked about this before. They bring out the whiteboard and they say, okay, let's work through possible explanations for this. Before we get started, it can't be anything in the Bible because that would be just crazy. And so they come up with an explanation like a meteor, even though there's no real evidence for that, or a multiverse or something like that. Science recognizes that the fossil record shows evidence of massive volcanic explosions happening across the face of the earth. We're talking about the earth's crust breaking open. And this is essentially what caused the continents we have today. The devastation of the flood explains the fossil record. It explains why we have all these strata in the fossil record and in rocks. And it explains the extinction of all air-breathing life. It explains the extinction of almost all marine life, which was just due to things like there being all the sediment in the Earth's oceans, all these chemicals being released from the Earth, which buried marine life almost instantly. The flood explains why all these animals are in the fossil record. And you guys probably know this, but fossils are only created when something is buried by an instantaneous event. It's not something that happens slowly. Something has to be buried immediately, boom, like that, and then put under an immediate amount of pressure, like an enormous mudslide, or instantly frozen, or something like that. And only a globally catastrophic event can explain the sheer number of fossils that we have. It's not a possible explanation that there's just a seemingly infinite number of creatures who happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time when there was a local mudslide in their area. Something catastrophic happened all over the globe and it was significant and it buried all life on earth at the same time. So let's get into something interesting here. I had you underline when this happened in that verse. There's something significant about the 17th day of the seventh month. Let's walk through this, hang with me here. Do you remember the first Passover? I don't mean like you personally, I know you weren't there, but, but it happened when the slaves were in Egypt, when the people of Israel were slaves in Egypt. And we don't have time for the story today, you can read about it in the book of Exodus. But if you do the research, you'll discover that that very first Passover occurred on the 14th day of the seventh month on the Hebrew calendar. And when they had been freed from Egypt, the Lord commanded all the people of Israel to never forget the miracle of Passover. And he said, the way I want you to do that is that every year on this same date, you're gonna celebrate the feast of Passover. And in Exodus 12, in the first six verses, it details the Lord telling the Israelites that he wanted them to reset their calendar so that instead of Passover taking place on the 14th day of the seventh month, he said, I don't want you to do that. I want you to make that the first month. The month of Passover is the first month. So instead of Passover being celebrated on the 14th day of the seventh month, which is when it happened, God said, I want you to reset your calendar and now instead of that month being the seventh month, it's gonna be the first month. Are you guys with me so far? So they, they, they do this reset, they change the date. So even though they're celebrating Passover on the 14th day of the first month now, if you took the calendar all the way back to the beginning, to the time of Noah, it would actually be the same day on the 14th day of the seventh month. Everybody still with me? Okay, smile and nod, just pretend you're with me and I'll feel so much better. So, they start doing this. Now let me ask you this, on what Jewish holiday was Jesus crucified? 
Passover. He's crucified on Passover, right? So Jesus is crucified on the 14th day of the first month, long after God tells them to change their calendar in Exodus 12. What happened three days after Jesus was crucified on Passover? Jesus rose again. So Jesus rises from the dead on the 17th day of the first month. Now if you take that back before Exodus 12 to the time of Noah, the date of Jesus' resurrection would have been the 17th day of the seventh month, which means that Noah's new beginning happened on the future anniversary of our new beginning, the same day on the calendar that Jesus rose from the dead. And the Genesis account was written and recorded thousands of years before the birth of Jesus. We still have copies of it today for more than 170 years before Jesus was born, which is mind-blowing to me because if you think that Jesus faked everything to somehow line this all up, that's just not possible for him to manipulate the Roman government that way, and yet Jesus dies on Passover and rises from the dead the same day that the ark came to the end of its journey. You don't need to go to the New Testament to find Jesus. He's all over the Bible. In Hebrews, it tells us that the Lord says, in the volume of the book, that means everywhere in the scriptures, it is written of me. Jesus is on every page of the Bible. In verse four, we read that the ark rested on the mountains of Ararat. Notice that it says mountains, not mountain. There is a Mount Ararat in existence today and it's 17,000 feet high. However, it's only one mountain in a range of mountains that are known as the mountains of Ararat. And that mountain range is huge. It touches on southeast Turkey, Armenia, southern Russia, northwest Iran, a whole region there. It's a region known generally as the Caucasus Mountains today. And all we know is that the ark landed somewhere in that region. It might have landed on the Mount Ararat. We just don't know. Now through all of this, Noah has been obedient. He's been obedient. And yet he finds himself trapped, stuck on this ark, top of a mountain, with nowhere to go, and, and nothing he can really do to change his situation. And yet we know he's exactly where the Lord wants him to be. We know the full story. We know what God has planned. We know the Lord is actually blessing Noah. Even though I'm sure he had days when he was on the ark when he felt cursed, where he's like, I just need a little personal space. Just a little personal space. And this reminds me of two small but really important points that every Christian needs to remember. Firstly, finding yourself in a difficult situation doesn't always mean that you've done something wrong. Should you ask that question of yourself? Absolutely. But don't ever fall into the type of thinking that believes that if you're going through difficulty, it must be because you lack faith or it must be because there's a sin issue. Sometimes God is just doing something. Sometimes God is doing something good even though it feels difficult at the moment. The second thing this reminds me of, make a note of this, is to never judge God's plan for your life when you can only see a tiny momentary sliver of it. Never judge God's plan for your life when you can only see a tiny momentary sliver of it. We do this all the time, don't we? God's plan is no good. Based on what? 
the events of the last week. And God is looking at the whole picture. It is wise for us to remember to reserve judgment until a later time. How much later? Until enough time has passed for you to recognize that God is being good to you. Because he always is. And if you can't see that yet, you just haven't waited long enough. But I guarantee the day is coming when you will see that the Lord is good, because he's always good. So if you look around right now and you're like, when I look at my life, it doesn't feel like the Lord is good, give it some time, you'll get there. Don't judge God's plan for your whole life based on a tiny momentary sliver of time. Trust him. Verse five, and the waters decreased continually until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. So it came to pass at the end of 40 days that Noah opened the window of the ark which he had made. Then he sent out a raven which kept going to and fro until the waters had dried up from the earth. A raven is a a scavenger, meaning that it probably ate some dead animals or people that were floating in the water and it probably rested on them too. And by sending out a scavenger, Noah was asking the question, is there anything out there? Is there anything out there? And the raven doesn't come back. So Noah knows there's something out there. Verse eight, he also sent out from himself a dove to see if the waters had receded from the face of the ground. Now a dove is a very docile bird that only eats vegetation and by sending out a dove, Noah was asking, is there any living plant life out there? Verse nine, but the dove found no resting place for the sole of her foot and she returned into the ark to him for the waters were on the face of the whole earth. So we put out his hand and took her and drew her into the ark to himself. There's no living plant life yet. Verse 10. And he waited yet another seven days and again he sent the dove out from the ark. Then the dove came to him in the evening and behold a freshly plucked olive leaf was in her mouth. And Noah knew that the waters had receded from the earth. Olive trees are able to survive an unusually long time while submerged underwater. And we're told that this wasn't a leaf that was just floating, it was a leaf that was freshly plucked from an olive tree. Verse 12, so he waited yet another seven days and sent out the dove which did not return again to him anymore. This means the dove had found a place to nest. There was enough vegetation visible that the dove didn't feel it needed to return to the ark for food. Now there is a possible prophetic insight, and I know I don't talk about this sort of stuff often, which I will share for you to ponder, discuss, and and draw your own conclusions on. So the dove was released on on three different days. And I know that there's a week between each day, but it's three different days that the dove is released on. In the Bible, when the dove appears, it's often a symbol of what? Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, classic Christian symbol. Now the Bible says, and I put it on your outline, famously, the Bible says, With the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. Holy Spirit was released on the earth on the day of Pentecost, as is recorded in Acts chapter two. Since that time, there's been almost 2,000 years that have passed, or based on that verse we just read from 2 Peter, around two days by the Lord's reckoning. On that third day, the dove does not return. Why? Because it has accomplished everything that it was sent to do. It had found a home on the new earth. 
And all this speaks to the reality that we're living in the end times, that dawning of the the third day when all things are made new in the millennial kingdom of Christ. And you might be thinking, ah, I don't know, Jeff, that's a stretch even for you. Maybe, maybe. But I find it interesting, also on your outlines, that the first two verses of Hosea 2 say this. Come, let us return to the Lord, speaking of Israel, for he has torn, but he will heal us. He has stricken, but he will bind us up. Now, despite God's protection still being on them, the Jewish people have been stricken ever since their rejection of Jesus, which really came to a head on the day we know as Palm Sunday. Since then, the Jews have been living under God's judgment and have had their spiritual eyes, so to speak, partially blinded by the Lord due to their unwillingness to receive Jesus as their Messiah. But read what the prophecy says next. And I have this whole thing underlined from here out. In Hosea, it says, after two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live in his sight. If a day to the Lord is as a thousand years from our perspective, what happened to the Jewish people right around the end of that second day? Israel became a nation again in 1948. Israel becomes a political nation. God revives Israel. And then it doesn't say after the third day. It says on the third day, God will raise them up to, quote, live in his sight. That's what's going to happen in the millennial kingdom. According to the Bible, after the hearts of the Jews have returned to the Lord through the events of the great tribulation, things like the events of Revelation 7. Now, is there something in all of that? I think so. I think it's significant too that Jesus was in the grave for two days and on the third day he rose again. But I'll let each of you come to your own conclusion on these things and we'll have some more coming up a little bit later in this message. Verse 13, and it came to pass in the 601st year. Noah is 601 years old. Interesting to me. He's at the beginning, the very beginning of the seventh century of his life. Seven is the biblical number of completion. Many of you know this, wholeness. There are six days in a week, then comes what? The seventh day, the day of rest, the day of rest. According to the Old Testament law, a man could be a slave for up to six years, but what had to happen in the seventh year, he had to be set free. Now hang with me a moment. If you trace back the genealogies in the Bible, you'll find that Adam was born around 4,000 BC. We're in the year 2018 right now, roughly 6,000 years from the time of Adam. That put us right around the changing from, from day six to day seven, if you said a day to the Lord is as a 1,000 years and a 1,000 years as a day. And there are several notable Bible scholars who see a lot of prophetic significance in those numbers, specifically that the seventh day is the Sabbath, the day of rest. And they suggest that perhaps the earth's Sabbath day, her number seven of thousand years, is gonna be the thousand years of the millennial kingdom when the earth rests under the rule and reign of Jesus Christ. And perhaps God's created model for man's week was not just to remind him of the six days of creation plus one day of rest. Perhaps it's also intended to prophetically point ahead to the pattern of the entire lifespan of the earth. Indeed, the entire lifespan of this universe. Interesting and worth talking about over dinner. 
Verse 13, and it came to pass in the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, that the waters were dried up from the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and indeed the surface of the ground was dry. And in the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth was dried. Then God spoke to Noah, saying, Go out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing of all flesh that is with you, birds and cattle and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, so that they may abound on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. And you can hear in God's command a striking similarity to the creation account and his instructions to Adam and Eve, because in many ways, Noah and his family were the new Adam and Eve, All variations of human beings who have ever lived since then, including you and I, go back to the family of Noah. Verse 18, so Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every animal, every creeping thing, every bird and whatever creeps on the earth according to their families went out of the ark. So Noah was testing things by sending out birds, but we notice that Noah didn't move. He didn't leave the ark until the Lord told him to. That's a good approach. Pay attention to what's going on around you. Keep an eye out for what the Lord might be doing, but don't move until he says to. Would Noah have died if he left the ark a day early? I don't think so. But he would not have been blessed in the same way as he was by waiting for the Lord's timing. And that's often what the choice is. We can move forward based on our own judgment. We're probably not going to die But if we want to be blessed as we move forward, we'll take that decision to the Lord and ask him to lead us in the right timing, trusting that his timing is the best timing. This applies to relationships. This applies to changing jobs, moving cities, any significant life change. Wait for the Lord's timing. If you don't, it's probably not going to ruin you, but you won't be blessed in the same way because the Lord knows things that you and I don't. So make a note of this. Noah trusted that the Lord's timing was the best timing. He trusted that the Lord's timing was the best timing. As we mentioned last week, Noah and his family stepped off one planet when they entered the ark and stepped onto another when they left the ark. Things would have been different in a way that we can't possibly comprehend. The the loss of the water canopy would have made the sun much brighter and things like UV rays wouldn't be filtered anymore. The loss of the water canopy would have likely at least changed a little bit the gravitational force of the earth, potentially affecting all kinds of flying animals that may have gone extinct because they didn't have the physiology to fly with this slight change in gravity. There would have been that new hydrological cycle, the water cycle as we know it today, rain, differing water pressures, wind, humidity, things like this. There would have been new mountains bigger than anything they had seen before, new valleys and canyons on a scale they had never imagined. There would have been different climates in different places and the temperature extremes of hot and cold would have been completely new to them. There would have been practically, think about this compared to the children's Bible version of Noah's Ark, there would have been practically no vegetation. No vegetation. Yeah, there would have been seeds in the soil all over the earth, but they would have taken some time to grow. The earth that they stepped out on would have been, for all intents and purposes, barren. The wood that they're using for those first couple of years probably all comes from the ark. 70% of the world's surface was now covered with water. 
The North and South Poles formed. They didn't exist before and they began to build up ice caps. And due to these weather extremes and the new topography of the earth, much of the earth was now uninhabitable. There would have been large bodies of water left all over the globe for a time. Think massive puddles like we have after rain, but on a, on a global scale with massive lakes. And what they say is that as these winds and air pressures were leveling out and the polar ice caps were forming for the first time, this ushered in essentially a mini ice age that swept across most of the globe and actually caused several animal species to go extinct very shortly after the flood. There would have been seismic and volcanic activity now just as a normal part of life. Not that it happened every day, but things like that weren't happening before the flood. And all of this dramatically shortened human lifespans. We see people beginning to live to 70, then 60, 50, till by the time of Jesus, people are dying in their 20s and 30s. Old people are living to their 40s. And we've managed to bump that up through modern medicine, but human lifespans began to shrink dramatically. And the moment they stepped off the ark, biggest difference from the children's Bible, there would have been death everywhere, everywhere. And people sometimes ask, why aren't there lots of fossils of people? And the answer is that when the flood came, men would have frantically built anything they could that would have floated, any type of boat, so to speak. And they would have sought out the high places as long as they possibly could. And therefore, they weren't necessarily buried in all these landslides because they were able to flee the water as long as they possibly could. For the most part, they were just moving to higher and higher elevation. Obviously, there are a few people discovered buried in stratification. But eventually, what happened is they got to the highest point they could, and then they drowned at that point. And rather than being buried under layers of mud, their corpses would have been exposed to the sun and water and basically disintegrated. And their bones still would have laid on the surface of the earth. And when Noah and his family got off the ark, they probably saw the bones of dead people all over the place and dead animals as well that had dried and floated and bloated and decayed and settled back to the ground and there they were lying on the ground decomposing in the sun. Pretty different from the picture you see in your children's Bibles, right? Where everyone comes off and they're happy and dancing. It would have been pretty disturbing. When they stepped off the ark and they walked into a post-flood world, the first thing they would have been extremely aware of was divine judgment and they would have gasped at what they saw. In verse 20 it says, then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. It was a disturbing scene. Death and desolation everywhere. A destroyed planet. The first thing they saw, massive death, massive judgment. And, and in that context, in that context now, we look at verse 20. One more time, then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. I don't believe this was primarily an upbeat act of thanksgiving. In the Old Testament, burnt offerings involved the animal being completely consumed. You know, some, some offerings you made to the Lord and it, it wasn't necessarily completely consumed. It was just kind of cooked, barbecued. And then you could actually be allowed to eat some of it afterwards sometime. But a burnt offering was completely consumed, completely burnt up. And it symbolized total devotion to the Lord, giving yourself completely to God, holding nothing back. And Noah certainly did that in offering one of every clean animal, even though they only had seven pairs of each in the whole world. 
But a burnt offering also symbolized something else. It symbolized repentance. A person recognizing that their sin needed God's forgiveness. And so Noah on his behalf, his wife's behalf, his son's behalf, and their wife's behalf sacrifices and says, we give everything to you, Lord. We totally, completely, and comprehensively dedicate ourselves to you. But this is also a sin offering because when they come face to face with the devastation of God's righteous judgment on the earth, I'm sure they were all stunned to silence because they all would have had the same thought that this was really what they deserved as well. This is what they really deserved as well. No one knew he wasn't a perfect man. He knew that he wasn't married to a perfect woman and he didn't have three perfect sons and three perfect daughters-in-law. He knew that they were all sinners. They knew that they were all sinners. And we know that they were sinning in the ark because they were human. And we're soon gonna find out just how sinful Noah is by a huge mistake he's gonna make very shortly in the book of Genesis. Noah knew his own sin and he knew what he deserved. And so, so Noah gives these sacrifices as a way of thanking God, committing himself to the Lord, but also confessing his need for forgiveness. He wasn't perfect. He and his family were saved. Why? Genesis 6, 8 tells us because he found grace in the eyes of the Lord. He found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Make a note of this. The reason Noah found grace was because he knew he needed it. He found grace because he recognized that he needed grace. You know who doesn't find grace? is people who refuse to recognize that they need it. The saving grace of Jesus is available to anyone who needs it. For 120 years, the Lord had Noah preaching that message to the world around them. You need the grace of God. You need the forgiveness of God. You're sinners. You need to be saved by the grace of God. And the people's response is, I don't need God's grace. I don't need it. But we need his grace. We need his grace. And the wonderful news is that even today, it's available to any of us who will say, God, I need it. I need it. And if you're already saved, God's grace is available to you in every area of life. Any area where you would say, God, I need your grace in this area of my life, in my marriage, for my kids, for my job, I need your grace. Noah found the grace of God because he knew he needed it. And if we will recognize our need for God's grace and ask for it, he'll give it freely. God didn't tell Noah to offer these sacrifices. Noah just did it because he recognized it was the most important thing that he and his family could do. Do you notice that they did this before they built a house? They didn't say, let's just unpack the ark first. There's a lot we need to do. Let's go search out the best piece of land. He worshiped the Lord first. It was his priority, his top priority. And that's so important because if we're honest, when we fail to worship and honor God first, most of the time we fail to do it at all. When we say we'll do it later, most of the time we end up not doing it at all. But when we do worship God first, it creates this moment in time for us that we're able to look back upon and draw faith from. Because whenever we stop and thank God for what he's done, whenever we stop and thank God for loving us and for forgiving us, for getting us through something, it sears that moment in our minds and creates this monument we can revisit within our spirits to say, oh, I remember when God did this because I remember thanking him for that and I remember thanking him for that and for that and for that and for that. And when we thank God 
first for what he's done for us, we're gonna find ourselves overwhelmed by the number of things we have to thank God for. If we'll be the kind of people that are always thanking God for his goodness, God will make sure that we always have things to thank him for. Always, every moment, day by day. And as we've said, it says that Noah sacrificed of every clean animal and bird. Do you know how many that would have been? A lot. A lot. It would have taken a while. And I'm sure some of his family members might have been tempted to say, are you sure? Like every clean animal? It seems a little extravagant and wasteful, Noah, considering we only have seven pairs of each animal. Seems like kind of a waste of resources. Just as, as we often tell ourselves, I don't have the time or the energy to thank the Lord right now. I, I gotta get to work. I gotta do this thing for my family. I gotta clean the house. I gotta get started on the checklist. I, 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 need, I gotta sleep sometime, I gotta rest. Just, I, I gotta do other things with the limited resources that I have and when I find myself thinking that way, it's important for me to remember that I'm putting myself in some very bad company because there was another guy who watched resources being poured out as a woman took her alabaster box filled with perfume that cost a year's wages and poured it out upon Jesus. And that man said, wait, wait a minute. This is such a waste of resources. We could have sold that perfume and given the money to the poor. And do you remember that man's name? Judas Iscariot. Judas Iscariot. And Jesus rebuked him and said, Nicely, shut up, Judas. She's done a good work for me. Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. That's because God values worship more than he values work. We love to prioritize work. We love to prioritize work. But the Lord says, worship is the priority. And we also love to say, but serving the Lord is worship. Yeah, not in the same way. Think of Mary and Martha, the sisters of Lazarus. Mary was sitting at the feet of Jesus. Martha was serving, working. She was literally serving the Lord. And when she complained that her sister was simply sitting at the feet of Jesus, what did Jesus say to her? He said, Martha, Martha, one thing is needed. And Mary has chosen that good part, which will not be taken away from her. To the Lord, time at his feet, time spent offering a sacrifice of praise, time spent taking communion and thanking Jesus for our salvation is time spent blessing the Lord. And it's meant to be our top priority. If you or I are workers but not worshipers, then we're missing the point. We've got our priority out of whack. The good news is that every single one of us has the ability to be a blessing to the Lord by prioritizing worship. It's more important than anything else we do. It's that simple. Verse 21, and the Lord smelled a soothing aroma. That's just allegorical language. In the Bible, when God is pleased with the aroma of a sacrifice, it means that he's pleased with the heart of the worshiper and vice versa. Then the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake. Although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth, nor will I again destroy every living thing as I have done. So I won't do it again in this way, i.e. with a flood. 
while the earth remains, underline while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer, and day and night shall not cease. So why does God give Noah this promise to never again destroy the earth by a flood? Well, I suspect in large part, it's so that Noah and his family wouldn't have to fear for their lives every time it rained. Can you imagine what it would have been like if God hadn't said this the very first time it rains again? Even though God said this, you know the first time it rained again, they were probably like, let's, uh, let's just go hang out in the ark. No, no reason. Let's just go hang out there and see what happens for a while. When it had rained last time, it brought the flood and the destruction of all life on earth. So they're probably a little bit nervous. God is, is gracious and patient with sinners. How long is his patience gonna last? He tells us, while the earth remains. While the earth remains. In other words, God's next judgment is going to result in the destruction of the planet, ultimately. We're not going to die from global warming. That's the good news. Well, depending on how you look at it, everyone, well, yeah. A different kind of global warming, let's put it that way. Global warming as we think of it is not gonna be the death of our planet. The earth will die when the Lord decides it's time to destroy it, period. The whole universe will come to an end when the Lord decides it's time to destroy it. And I will suggest that will not be preventable by using paper straws in the meantime. It's not gonna help, sorry. Now God's not gonna force any of us to worship him tonight, but some of us will. And as we do, we're gonna have the privilege of being a blessing to the Lord and knowing that we're fulfilling our highest calling. I always say this, there's no gift of worship mentioned in the Bible. It's not meant to be something that some of us do and some of us don't. It's meant to be something that Christians do. We worship the Lord because it blesses the Lord. We don't worship the Lord for what we get out of it. We worship the Lord to be a blessing to him, that's the whole goal. So take time to, to slow down and take communion this evening. Thank the Lord for saving you. Thank him for his mercy. Confess that you need his forgiveness, you need his grace, and just allow him to refresh you in that way once again. Some of us are in the place right now where, where things don't look good, and we know it's not because we lack faith or because we're in sin. Things just don't look good right now or we're stuck. Maybe we've gotta make a decision to wait on the Lord's timing or, or just step out on our own. Let me encourage you. The Lord's timing always comes with the Lord's blessing. And trust me, you want the Lord's blessing. If that's the place that you're in this evening, take communion as well. Remember what Jesus has done for you. And then remind yourself that anyone who would die for you as Jesus has deserves your trust when he says, trust me. I've got your best in mind. He deserves your trust and your patience. And lastly, some of us just need to, to stop tonight because we haven't thanked the Lord specifically for the ways that he's been faithful to us recently. And some of us have some incredible things to thank the Lord for or things that we just haven't noticed where we were thankful in that moment but we didn't actually stop and tell the Lord, Father, thank you. Thank you for taking care of me. And so if that's you, I wanna ask you tonight to, to do that. Take some time to just stop and thank the Lord specifically. Build those monuments within your soul, within your spirit that you'll be able to look back on and say, no, I remember the Lord was faithful here. I remember thanking him for coming through in this way and this way. And therefore I know in the future, 
I will be erecting more monuments to the faithfulness of the Lord. I remember. So with that, let's pray. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Father, thank you so much for your incredible grace and love for each of us, Lord. Thank you that though we deserve judgment, though we deserve death, though we deserve eternal separation from you, you have saved us and you have brought us into your family as co-heirs with your son, Jesus Christ. You've made us his brothers and his sisters. Thank you for doing that, Lord. We understand that we don't deserve it. And Lord, day by day, moment by moment, we recognize that we are taking advantage of the blood of Jesus covering us and our sins. And even though we wish we didn't need to claim it every single day, we know that we do. And we thank you that it's available, Lord. We thank you that it's available. And we look forward to the day when we'll be freed from the bondage of sin and can even more fully be a blessing to you, Lord God, when sin is done away with. But this evening we thank you that our sins are forgiven. And Lord, we pause to think about all the ways that you've been faithful to us, all the ways that you've been so good to us. Lord, would you begin just to stir those things to mind right now, bring them up from the depths of our memories and remind us of all that you've done. And may we thank you in sincerity tonight. May we build these monuments within our spirits that we will look back on. Lord, stories that we will point to and tell our children. I remember, I remember when you were young, we were praying about this and the Lord came through. I remember we didn't know how we were gonna get through that situation, but the Lord came through. I remember we were scared and we were worried, but we held on in faith and the Lord came through. I remember we didn't know how we would get over that, but the Lord brought peace in a way that only he could. I remember. And God is faithful. He is faithful. And Lord, for those who are struggling tonight with the decision to wait on your timing or to force an issue themselves, would you stir in their memories as well all the ways that they have been blessed when they've waited for your timing? And would you give them the gift of faith to wait for your timing and your best yet again? believing that you always have our good in mind because you're a good father. You're a good father. Thank you for your kindness to us, Lord. We love you so much. Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says the gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it. 
And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the Word of God with us. And always remember, God is with you.